Welcome to Great Souls, great stories presented by The Seagull Project. I'm your host, Gavin Reeb, here with our fourth episode entitled Gifts of the Season. Finding inspiration in these frosty, blanketed, and hopefully empathic few months. A time when we are forced indoors here in much of the northern U.S. away from others, and yet still taught to focus on what lies outside. I can think of no greater thing for us to do this season than to take some time to consider what we already do on a day-to-day -day basis to help people around us, and what gifts we can still give to lift others through one of the darkest winters of our lifetime. As is the way with this podcast, we are taking part in this communal consideration through telling stories. If you enjoy what you hear in this episode, then we'd love for you to make a donation to The Seagull Project. You can find the link wherever you found this podcast. Think of it like a pay-what-you-can ticket, and this like a warm group gathering of stories and storytellers. We release these episodes for free in hopes that more people can access and enjoy them, so please share them far and wide. But if you can spare it, we'd appreciate some support so we can continue to push forward in our new medium and to look towards that non-metaphorical, big, warm, communal room in our future. Oh! And since we're telling stories in our metaphorical room, might as well do it around my little audio fire. Let me get that set up. There we go. Now that our cheeks are rosy and comfy cozy, are we? Let's get into it. Our gifts to you this holiday season include two wonderful, heartwarming stories. The first, a 1950s Jewish-American Christmas story by David Cypress, which will be followed by the absolute world classic tale, The Gift of the Magi by O. Henry. These are some of our favorite stories, filled with love, family, giving, laughter, and the gifts of the season. Our first story is from writer of fiction and nonfiction David Cypress, although it's more likely you know him from his cartoons, which have appeared in The New Yorker, Time, Parade, Harper's, The Washington Post, and many more. The story was first published in The New Yorker in 2014. Here Cypress looks back on his childhood when his family would celebrate both Christmas and Hanukkah at the same time. Oh, I should mention again that David Cypress is a cartoonist as well, and this story was originally published with one attached. Close your eyes and imagine a simple sketch. It's a father and his young son. The father holds an axe, and it's apparent that they are looking for a Christmas tree. In front of them stands a huge menorah-shaped tree with fir treetops where the candles would be. With that image in mind, here is Rob Burgess reading a 1950s Jewish-American Christmas story by David Cypress. This cartoon of mine from 2006 is among my most autobiographical. Not that my father and I ever actually went into any woods together, unless you count Central Park, and I don't think he ever chopped down a tree. What's autobiographical is the confusion I felt as a child over the fact that my family, like many Upper West Side Reformed Jewish families in the 1950s, celebrated both Hanukkah and Christmas. We celebrated the two holidays in separate rooms, Christmas in the living room and Hanukkah in the kitchen, so that we wouldn't get them mixed up, I guess, or perhaps to prevent contamination. In the kitchen, on a baking sheet so the candles wouldn't drip on anything, was the gold-painted tin menorah I got at Sunday school. I loved lighting the orange, Jewish candles, and saying the blessing. 
mainly because it was the only time I was ever allowed to get anywhere near fire. In the living room, presents were piled under the piano until Christmas morning. Even for dedicated assimilators like my parents, a Christmas tree would have been a bridge too far. On Christmas Eve, over the presents, my mother would play Christmas carols while I sat beside her on the piano bench and sang along, often mystified by the strange, incomprehensible lyrics. The two weeks before Christmas were the busiest for my father. He would open his jewelry shop on 61st Street and Lexington Avenue at 8 a.m. and stay until the last customer finished shopping at 9 or 10 that night. This made my father's Christmas shopping for my mother a bit of a challenge. She would have been happy to shop for her own presents and save him the trouble. Saving him the trouble was her life's work. But, to his credit, he wouldn't cross that line. So, every year, for an hour or so, my mother would hold down the fort at the shop while my father hurried out to get her gifts. The year I was six, about to turn seven, I was with my mother when she arrived at the shop, ready to take over. We had been to Bloomingdale's to see Santa, just to see him, because I wasn't allowed to sit on his lap. The reason was some version of, we don't know where it's been. It was decided that I could go along with my father while he did his shopping, and the details of what I said on this outing quickly became one of the cute and, for me, highly embarrassing stories my father told and retold to friends and relatives in the coming years. He was still telling it the year he died, at the age of 93. It was a cold, late afternoon. We were heading for the shop of a Japanese dressmaker who, barely five feet tall herself, specialized in clothes for tiny women like my mother. My father wore an elegant camel's hair coat and a cashmere scarf. He was hatless, as usual, oversized ears turning bright red after a few seconds in the cold, his thick gray mustache frosty and stiff. This excursion was special for me. I rarely spent time alone with my father. He worked six days a week, and on Sundays he was exhausted and preoccupied. As we walked east on 61st Street and turned down 1st Avenue, he did the one thing that reliably dissolved any questions I might have had about where I stood with him. He took my hand and held it as we walked. The dressmaker greeted us warmly in her small shop. After a brief exchange of pleasantries and some mutual commiseration about running a small business during the holidays, my father said, I want to get something nice for Estelle. Oh, yes, the dressmaker said, making a show of giving the matter some thought before plunging into the overstuffed rack and pulling out a dress that my mother had selected a few weeks before. My father said that it was perfect. The dressmaker wrapped it up nicely and then placed it in a brown paper bag so that my mother wouldn't know what it was. It was already dark when we stepped outside. Mission accomplished, my father said, mainly to himself. And I've got that jade necklace I've been saving for all year back at the shop. Let's take a little walk, he then suggested. And we turned at the next corner. In the middle of the block was a small red brick church. Behind a low wrought iron fence was a garishly floodlit nativity scene. Music was playing, Oh, Come All Ye Faithful, or something similar. We stopped. The nativity scene reminded me of the dioramas I loved at the Museum of Natural History, with the cavemen and the wild animals. My memory of the nativity scene is vivid, because it was my first. It included life-size statues of the standard three humans, and, more exciting for me, a cow 
a sheep, a goat, and real straw and hay. Why are they in a barn? I asked my father. I took off my earmuffs so I could hear his answer. It's all they could afford, he said. <laughs> How should I know? Let's get going. It's cold and it's getting late. Isn't it smelly? We had recently visited my mother's cousins in Connecticut, and they had taken me to a farm where you could pet the animals. What had most impressed me was the smell. Don't the animals go to the bathroom right there? Yes. No, they, they probably go outside. Let's, let's hope so, at least. That's Jesus, I said, pointing to the baby. He was chubby and pink and reminded me of the phrase tender and mild in Silent Night, one of the songs my mother and I sang together at the piano. The words made the baby sound like something good to eat. What are the parents' names, I asked. Joseph and Mary and, and, and those guys in the background on, on the camels. He pointed to a painted backdrop leaning against the wall of the church. Those are kings, supposedly. What are kings, supposedly? I meant it's just a story. Did they have countries? Why are they coming there on camels? They're bringing presents for the baby. Where's Santa? What? The North Pole, I guess. Come on, kiddo. Let's vamoose. He took my hand, but I didn't budge. When Jesus grows up, he gets crucified, I told him. They hammer nails into him. What? How do you know about that? The movie. The one about the bathrobe. The what? That Easter, I had watched The Robe on television one afternoon with my sister Linda. There's a wonderful scene in which Richard Burton, playing Marcellus, a Roman tribune, arrives at Pilate's palace along with another soldier, a centurion. The scene opens with Pilate washing his hands. When Marcellus walks in, Pilate says that he has a final task for him before the tribune goes off on a new assignment on Capri. An execution. Three criminals... One of them is a fanatic. There might be trouble. Pilate says that he's had a rough night and, looking dazed and distracted, requests a bowl to wash his hands. A slave tells him that he just washed them a minute ago. Mm, so I did, Pilate says, and he exits, zombie-like. Then the centurion asks Marcellus perhaps the most hilarious deadpan question in the history of cinema. Your first crucifixion? Yes, Marcellus mumbles, staring down at the scroll containing his orders. You mean the robe, my father said. We were both silent for a few seconds, contemplating the pink plaster infant in his mother's arms, with the very bad death in his future. Linda says Jesus was Jewish. What was he, Daddy, Jewish or Christian? He was Jewish, he replied. Christians hadn't been invented yet. We have to go, honey, my father said, pulling on my arm. I'll tell you all about it, but now we have to mosey. Do they kill camels to make our coats? He didn't reply to that one. We started walking. Here's the deal with Jesus, in a nutshell, he said. When he grew up, he started telling everyone that he was the son of God, and I looked back toward the church and pointed. But wasn't he the son of Joseph and Mary? Didn't he come from his mommy? Yes, but... He, he kept saying otherwise. He kept saying his mommy was a virgin. Round yon virgin, I thought. But she hadn't looked round. He told everybody that God sent him directly to earth to be his son and save the world, supposedly. But then what happened? He started wandering all over the place in Israel, 
teaching people about religion and collecting a bunch of followers who started claiming that he was performing miracles. What's miracles? Tricks, like uh, magic tricks, like walking on water. But you can't do that, I said. I was already thinking I would give it a try the next summer when we went to the beach. That's why they're miracles. Anyway, the other Jews, the ones in charge, started hearing he was saying he was the son of God and they got mad. Why? He got too big for his britches. This I understood. I had been yelled at many times and even spanked once or twice for the very same crime. So, when he wouldn't keep his mouth shut, they complained to the Romans, who were in charge of the Jews and everyone else back then, and the rest is history. But nobody blames the Romans. Everyone blames the Jews, which is why we've had so much trouble from the Christians. Even today. They ate our guts, Linda told me. Not all of them. Some do, but not all of them. For a couple of blocks, I thought about the Christians I knew. My teacher, a few friends at school, our cleaning lady, our elevator man. At Lexington Avenue, we turned uptown. In front of Bloomingdale's, we passed a Salvation Army Santa. Is Santa God? I asked. Is he Jesus' father? What? No! Enough with the questions. Now we could see the shop a block away and my mother's head in the window. Is he Christian? Yes, he's Christian. He, he's based on some saint. The one in charge of presents. Speaking of which, he held up the paper bag and smiled at me. Don't tell your mother what's in here. Is that how he can get into our apartment when we don't have a chimney and all the doors are double locked? Is it a miracle? Like walking on water? <laughs> I don't know. Ask your mother. He pulled me along as he picked up the pace. Why do we have Christmas since Santa is a Christian and we're Jewish and some of them don't like us? Because we're Americans, he answered. His eyes were on the shop. But if they don't like us enough with the questions, he looked at me and gripped my hand tighter. It's just a holiday, so we can have presents, understand? That's it. Case closed. But Hanukkah has presents. Oh, he sighed. Hanukkah's too long. Doing it all in one day makes more sense. Some of us have to work. What's a virgin? I asked as I stumbled after him across 61st Street. Someone from Virginia, he replied. This story is an excellent example of the type of comedy that David has been best at throughout his career. Discussing his style with The New Yorker, David said, Often what happens is that a good cartoon, a funny cartoon, consists of something very familiar and something very unfamiliar. You take a situation that everybody is familiar with, but you express it or draw it or present it in a way that is surprising. When those two things happen together, that kind of combustible mix is what makes a really great cartoon and a really funny cartoon. David's story of a complicated childhood cultural mashup may combine two juxtaposing religions, but its push and pull between different American cultural aspects is by no means unique. The great melting pot, or salad, or whatever metaphor we're using today, that is America, is one whose ideals are built on accepting a complex worldwide tapestry of beliefs. 
We all celebrate differently, but there's a deeply rooted reason why humans come together during some of the most difficult weeks of the year, to protect and care for one another, to recognize the vast landscape of our local humanity, to provide strength to those in our community and beyond. We need it more than ever this year. William Sidney Porter was born in 1862 in Greensboro, North Carolina. Mr. Porter would go on to become the popular father of the American short story, O. Henry. After a brief run from the law for some questionable charges in his early 20s and a short stint in prison, he moved to New York City in 1902, adopting the pen name O. Henry. He would complete one story a week for a newspaper, in addition to writing for magazines, helping to sharpen his famous short story form and signature ending. The Gift of the Magi was initially published in New York Sunday World in 1905. The story around its creation is contested, but the most entertaining option is that he was forced to write it in under two hours when a man came to warn him of an immediate deadline. Regardless of its creative constraints, the story has become one of the most popular in the world, selling 5 million copies in 1920, 10 years after his death, and spawning at least 17 film versions and countless other adaptations. Truly the gift that keeps on giving. This story makes me think about the ritual of gift giving. Why do we give gifts? Well, the core of it comes from the original Magi, true, but its current formation has a long and complicated mixture of faith and capitalist marketing machines that I'd honestly love to get into, but in light of the season, it reeks a bit of sacrilege. And I'll just suffice to say that the traditions we celebrate today had a far more communal and less commercial roots prior to the 19th century. Email me at info at theseagullproject.org and I'll send you a great article that makes Scrooge look like a saint. Anyway, back towards the seasonal spirit. An eternal classic, one of the simplest and most beautiful holiday stories of all time, The Gift of the Magi by O. Henry, as read by Amy Fleetwood. One dollar and eighty-seven cents. Oh, that was all. And sixty cents of it was in pennies. Pennies saved one and two at a time by bulldozing the grocer and the vegetable man and the butcher until one's cheeks burned with the silent imputation of parsimony that such close dealing implied. Three times Della counted it. One dollar and eighty-seven cents, and the next day would be Christmas. There was clearly nothing to do but flop down on the shabby little couch and howl. So Della did it which instigates the moral reflection that life is made up of sobs, sniffles, and smiles, with sniffles predominating. While the mistress of the house is gradually subsiding from the first stage to the second, take a look at the home. A furnished flat at $8 per week. It did not exactly beggar description, but it certainly had that word on the lookout for the mendicancy squad. In the vestibule below was a letter-box into which no letter would go, and an electric button from which no mortal finger could coax a ring. Also appertaining thereunto was a card bearing the name Mr. James Dillingham Young. The Dillingham had been flung to the breeze during a former period of prosperity, when its possessor was being paid thirty dollars per week. Now, when the income was shrunk to twenty dollars, though, 
they were thinking seriously of contracting to a modest and unassuming D. But whenever Mr. James Dillingham Young came home and reached his flat above, he was called Jim, and greatly hugged by Mrs. James Dillingham Young, already introduced to you as Della, which is all very good. Della finished her cry and attended to her cheeks with the powder rag. She stood by the window and looked out dully at a gray cat walking a gray fence in a gray backyard. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and she had only one dollar and eighty-seven cents with which to buy Jim a present. She had been saving every penny she could for months with this result. Twenty dollars a week doesn't go far. Expenses had been greater than she had calculated. They always are. Only one dollar and eighty-seven cents to buy a present for Jim. Her Jim. Many a happy hour she had spent planning for something nice for him. Something fine and rare and sterling. Something just a little bit near to being worthy of the honor of being owned by Jim. There was a pier glass between the windows of the room. Perhaps you have seen a pier glass in an eight-dollar flat. A very thin and very agile person may, by observing his reflection in a rapid sequence of longitudinal strips, obtain a fairly accurate conception of his looks. Della, being slender, had mastered the art. Suddenly she whirled from the window and stood before the glass. Her eyes were shining brilliantly, but her face had lost its color within twenty seconds. Rapidly she pulled down her hair and let it fall to its full length. Now there were two possessions of the James Dillingham Youngs in which they both took a mighty pride. One was Jim's gold watch that had been his father's and his grandfather's. The other was Della's hair. Had the Queen of Sheba lived in the flat across the air shaft, Della would have let her hair hang out the window some day to dry, just to depreciate Her Majesty's jewels and gifts. Had King Solomon been the janitor, with all his treasures piled up in the basement, Jim would have pulled out his watch every time he passed, just to see him pluck at his beard from envy. So now Della's beautiful hair fell about her, rippling and shining like a cascade of brown waters. It reached below her knee and made itself almost a garment for her. And then she did it up again, nervously and quickly. Once she faltered for a minute and stood still while a tear or two splashed on the worn red carpet. On went her old brown jacket, on went her old brown hat. With a whirl of skirts, and with the brilliant sparkle still in her eyes, she fluttered out the door and down the stairs to the street. Where she stopped, the sign read, Madame Sophroni, hair goods of all kinds. One flight up, Della ran and collected herself, panting. Madame, large, too white, chilly, hardly looked the Sophroni. Will you buy my hair? asked Della. I buy hair, said Madame. Take your hat off and let's have a sight of the looks of it. Down rippled the brown cascade. Twenty dollars, said Madame, lifting the mass with a practiced hand. Give it to me, quick, said Della. Oh, and the next two hours tripped by on rosy wings. Ah, forget the hashed metaphor. She was ransacking the stores for Jim's present. She found it at last. It surely had been made for Jim and no one else. 
There was no other like it in any of the stores, and she had turned all of them inside out. It was a platinum fob chain, simple and chaste in design, properly proclaiming its value by substance alone and not by meretricious ornamentation, as all good things should do. It was even worthy of the watch. As soon as she saw it, she knew that it must be Jim's. It was like him. Quietness and value, the description applied to both. Twenty-one dollars they took from her for it, and she hurried home with the eighty-seven cents. With that chain on his watch, Jim might be properly anxious about the time in any company. Grand as the watch was, he sometimes looked at it on the sly on account of the old leather strap that he used in place of a chain. When Della reached home, her intoxication gave way a little to prudence and reason. She got out her curling irons and lighted the gas and went to work repairing the ravages made by generosity added to love, which is always a tremendous task, dear friends, a mammoth task. Within forty minutes, her head was covered with tiny, close-lying curls that made her look wonderfully like a truant schoolboy. She looked at her reflection in the mirror long, carefully, and critically. Hmm. If Jim doesn't kill me, she said to herself, before he takes a second look at me, he'll say I look like a Coney Island chorus girl. But what could I do? Oh, what could I do with a dollar and eighty-seven cents? At seven o'clock, the coffee was made, and the frying pan was on the back of the stove, hot and ready to cook the chops. Jim was never late. Della doubled the fob chain in her hand and sat on the corner of the table near the door that he always entered. Then she heard his step on the stair, away down on the first flight, and she turned white for just a moment. She had a habit of saying a little silent prayer about the simplest everyday things, and now she whispered, Please, God, make him think I am still pretty. The door opened, and Jim stepped in and closed it. He looked thin and very serious. Poor fellow, he was only twenty-two, and to be burdened with a family. He needed a new overcoat and he was without gloves. Jim stopped inside the door, as immovable as a setter at the scent of quail. His eyes were fixed upon Della, and there was an expression in them that she could not read, and it terrified her. It was not anger, nor surprise, nor disapproval, nor horror, nor any of the sentiments that she had been prepared for. He simply stared at her fixedly with that peculiar expression on his face. Della wriggled off the table and went for him. Jim, darling, she said, don't look at me that way. I had my hair cut off and sold because I couldn't have lived through Christmas without giving you a present. It'll grow out again. You won't mind, will you? I just had to do it. My hair grows awfully fast. Say, Merry Christmas, Jim, and let's be happy. You don't know what a nice, what a beautiful nice gift I've got for you. You've cut off your hair? asked Jim laboriously as if he had not arrived at that patent fact yet, even after the hardest mental labor. Cut it off and sold it, said Della. Don't you like me just as well, anyhow? I'm me without my hair, ain't I? Jim looked about the room curiously. You say your hair is gone, he said, with an air almost of idiocy. You needn't look for it, said Della. It's sold, I tell you, sold and gone too. It's Christmas Eve, boy. Be good to me, for it went for you. Maybe the hairs of my head were numbered, she went on with sudden serious sweetness, but nobody could ever count my love for you. Shall I put the chops on, Jim? 
Out of his trance, Jim seemed quickly to wake. He enfolded his Della. For ten seconds, let us regard with discreet scrutiny some inconsequential object in the other direction. Eight dollars a week or a million a year. What is the difference? A mathematician or a wit would give you the wrong answer. The Magi brought valuable gifts, but that was not among them. This dark assertion will be illuminated later on. Jim drew a package from his overcoat pocket and threw it upon the table. Don't make any mistake, Dell, he said, about me. I don't think there's anything in the way of a haircut or a shave or a shampoo that could make me like my girl any less. But if you'll unwrap that package, you may see why you had me going a while at first. White fingers and nimble tore at the string and paper, and then an ecstatic scream of joy, and then, alas, a quick feminine change to hysterical tears and wails, necessitating the immediate employment of all the comforting powers of the lord of the flat. For there lay the combs, the set of combs, side and back, that Della had worshipped long in a Broadway window, beautiful combs, pure tortoiseshell, with jeweled rims, just the shade to wear in the beautiful vanished hair. They were expensive combs, she knew, and her heart had simply craved and yearned over them without the least hope of possession. And now they were hers. But the tresses that should have adorned the coveted adornments were gone. But she hugged them to her bosom, and at length she was able to look up with dim eyes and a smile and say, My hair grows so fast, Jim. And then Della leaped up like a little singed cat and cried, Oh, oh! Jim had not yet seen his beautiful present. She held it out to him eagerly upon her open palm. The dull, precious metal seemed to flash with the reflection of her bright and ardent spirit. Isn't it a dandy, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day now. Give me your watch. I want to see how it looks on it. Instead of obeying, Jim tumbled down on the couch and put his hands under the back of his head and smiled. Dell, said he, let's put our Christmas presents away and keep them a while. They're too nice to use just at present. I sold the watch to get the money to buy your combs. And now suppose you put the chops on. The Magi, as you know, were wise men wonderfully wise men, who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of giving Christmas presents. Being wise, their gifts were no doubt wise ones, possibly bearing the privilege of exchange in case of duplication. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are wisest everywhere they are wisest. They are the Magi. Thank you all for gathering around my audio fireplace for this special winter edition of Great Souls, Gifts of the Season. 
If you liked what you heard, consider donating to The Seagull Project and subscribing to our newsletter so you can keep up to date on all Great Souls content, as well as other exciting projects coming from The Seagull Project. We so appreciate all the support during these difficult times. You are all our light in this dark winter cave we call December 2020. Keep an eye out for a very special patron event in January and a super secret audio drama that will arrive just in time for Valentine's Day. But until then, stay safe, be the Magi, and keep reading good stories. <laughs>